Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. Just to start, um, to start just remembering that um, our beloved Pastor Matt Cruz is, as of this time, on a sabbatical. Everybody or most knows that, so we won't be seeing the cruises here for some months. So just a note to remember to be praying for them, be thoughtful for them, um, and just pray that God would give them a deep season of rest in this Sabbath, that God would bring, um, build them up and be strengthened in Christ. I'm excited to do this today. I think even if Cruz wasn't on sabbatical, I would have been lobbying to be the first preacher in 2022. And that's because I feel it very important to correct an error, a lie really that has been promulgated from this pulpit for a long time, namely one by Matthew Cruz himself. So you've all been told from this place of authority in the exposition of God's word to believe something that's simply not true. And that is that Mexico Lindo is bad food. The, the gall. I love Mexico Lindo. We need to start this year through corporate repentance and start actively patronizing that fine foods establishment down the street. Okay? Today's text is in part about food. So coincidentally, Mexico Lindo and Jesus do have this in common. They are both very interested in feeding people. And at the end of feeding, there tends to be leftovers. Mexico Lindo never runs out of tortilla chips. Jesus never runs out of bread. So as you can tell, I'm trying to associate these two things. So whether or not you actually go and eat there, whenever you drive by it, I want you thinking about Jesus feeding 5,000 people. That's, that's the point. So you heard in the text that we stood and we read aloud that Jesus is in the middle of nowhere. There's a crowd there, there's 5,000 people, he takes five loaves and two fish, and he feeds everyone. It's an interesting test, text, and what's inescapable about it is the miraculous, right? It's a classic miracle text. There is no natural way to understand what he does. So if you don't have a category for reasoning how Jesus can do abnormal things, or maybe someone would say scientifically impossible things, then when you get to a text like this or others like it, you'll naturally stumble, trip up, what have you. So I want to give some thoughts to ponder for the person maybe in the room that's skeptical, maybe someone listening who's skeptical, or if these are just things that you're thinking through, you want to think through how do I help people understand uh, miracles in the Bible because they're all over the place, stuff like turning water into wine, walking on water. In our text, what we're concerned with this morning is uh, multiplying food. So without getting too heavy and wading into intellectual waters that I'm incapable for and probably wouldn't be able to communicate, I want to give you uh, f- a few things here that I've found helpful, and they should be up here on the screen. Christianity is predicated on miracles. Important to start with that. The start of Jesus' life and the end of Jesus' life, you need to put it in quotations, is that Jesus was born of a virgin, which is not how the birds and the bees work, and that when he was dead for three days, 
he came back to life, which is naturally ridiculous. So to gain some common ground with the skeptic, I would admit this. If I started this morning and I say, hey, the way that I came into being was I hatched from an egg, and the way that I'm going to leave the planet is I'm going to morph into a phoenix and I'm going to fly away. Would anybody listen to the rest of the words that I had to say? No. My credibility would be blown. You'd write me off. You'd stop listening and you'd be right to do so. However, that is what a lot of skeptics do with Christianity when they're dealing with the miraculous about Jesus and they are wrong to do so. So hopefully today would be some help towards understanding why my claim from hatching from an egg is different than the Bible's claim that Christ multiplied bread and fish. These are not the same thing. So regardless of whether a skeptic or someone who's having a hard time believing in the miracles of God, it's important to say that the Christian faith is predicated on miracles. So we don't concede that point. We actually hold firm to that. Christians, by definition, believe in miracles, at least those told in the Bible. So Christians have this category for things outside of nature invading into nature, namely God. So that's not to say that every Christian believes everything that someone says is miraculous or a miracle. In most cases, it's probably not. But that's to say that Christians do believe what Scripture says regarding miracles. The second point that I want to make is, or highlight, is everyone actually believes in miracles. This one I was a little afraid would, would get too heady, but try to, try to stick, stick with me. No one is actually exempted from a belief in miracles altogether. It's very popular today to say, well, I believe in science, as if other people don't believe in science. Have you ever met actually someone who just disagrees with fundamental tenets of science? Maybe you have, I don't know. Ultimately, the miraculous explains where we come from. Nobody has a theory that can get past the problem of the starting point of existence. Matter, call it nature, has, it's either always existed or it was created. It's only one of those two things, and every single theory always gets back to one of those two things. Do I need to give everybody a five-minute recess to think through that? If God didn't start it, and the most common theory is that something exploded, namely the Big Bang, well, then some form of material had to explode. Some form of stuff had to exist. Otherwise, we're talking about magic, which is unexplainable nonsense, or miracles, which are hard-to-understand interventions. So if someone says, uh, what if aliens put us here? I'd say, well, that's the same problem. The aliens are made of stuff. Where did the aliens come from? If someone says, well, maybe this is an artificial simulation and this is actually the Matrix. I'd say, well, that was a great movie, but now I can't help you because you're crazy. And then you still have the same problem because someone outside the system is writing the system. If someone says, well, maybe we live in a multi-dimensional existence and something else put us here, I'd say, exactly. But you still have the problem with stuff. Where did stuff come from? So traditionally, historically, this was uh, one of the logical proofs of God. A man named Thomas Aquinas called it the first cause or prime mover proof. I think it's helpful and it's fun to think about, but it doesn't get anybody to Jesus. Right, so maybe you can punch holes in someone's thinking and you can explode their brains with 
all the ways that you've thought about this, and you can get them to agree that something started something. But from believing in the first mover proof to getting to Jesus isn't necessarily a logical path. I'll give you an example. I have a client uh, named Mohammed who argues that we are all energy bubbles that will in the end return to the uh, cosmic energy bubble. So Mohammed doesn't believe that nothing came from nothing. He believes in a first cause, but he would just say that it's universe mojo or something like that. So the point I'm making here is that everyone believes in a miracle, even the hardest of atheists, in at least one miracle tied to the existence of everything. So everyone has a place for unexplained phenomena in their thinking. Now my final point, which is actually an invitation, is this. To believe any of the Jesus stuff requires a miracle. People cannot be reasoned into the Christian faith, although we could argue all we want that the faith is very reasonable and in fact the basis for reason. But if you're a skeptic, even if you're here or you're listening or you're skeptical about a commitment to biblical inerrancy, that, that the scripture gives us everything that is right and true, and you're inclined not to believe a text of scripture like the one that we're going to encounter today that says Jesus took five loaves and a couple fish and he fed 5,000 people with it, then what I want to do is challenge you. No one is ever going to prove to your satisfaction that Jesus did the feeding of the 5,000 miracle. You first actually have to have a faith in God, in his goodness, that he sent Christ his son, and that comes from having a Holy Spirit birth, right? So a Holy Spirit birth, even that is a miracle claim. The Spirit of God has to overcome the heart of man for the win, and then from that heart of faith, can come this acceptance, this believing that Christ can invade our nature. So the challenge would be, if you're interested in God, you don't know what to do with these miracle texts, you don't know what to do with other things that the Bible says, then I would say, talk to God about giving you that kind of faith. He honestly will, and then you will be on a wild ride. All right, so now that we've gotten those things down, those, things, those three things in mind, I want to go through the text, and we're going to walk through this verse by verse. So Luke chapter 9, if you're, if you're following along, if you're online, hopefully you can see this on the screen. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 10, it says, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So to put this in a little bit of context, our text today is situated in Luke in between two groups of texts. And those two texts are unbelief is trying to figure out who Jesus is and the crowds who are following Jesus, seeing him doing all these kinds of miraculous, crazy stuff, and they're wondering who he is. So Jesus has grown in popularity. People are making statements about him. They're witnessing him doing these things. And the things that he's doing simply just don't make sense. So ever since Jesus has walked on the scene, people then didn't know what to do with him. People today don't know what to do with him. His closest 12 apostles, disciples, have just returned from a short missions trip. Right? So Jesus told them to go into the village and by village, and they went there and they were curing people. They were doing all kinds of marvelous, unnatural things. And when they come back from this excursion, Jesus wants them to rest. 
So we can probably draw some form of ministry rest application from this, but we're not going to get into it now. It's good for you to put a pin in that and just know that Jesus found it important enough for us to rest. So the next verse goes on. It says, when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So you see that word crowds, lots and lots of people. They find out he is retreating to rest, and they follow him. They missed his Instagram post that said he needed a little bit of time off, and they showed up where he is. So when they find him, he starts working again. This is one of those small details in the text that show you the personal holiness of Jesus. Where would your heart be if you tried to get away from work and a bunch of people showed up on your vacation? How fun is it when you're smack dab in the middle of a vacation, the sun's hot, there's family around, maybe you have a nice cold drink and there's barbecue going, and then someone calls you and they're like, yeah, hey, uh, did you see that email? Like, no, but if you call me again, I'll kill you, right? That's, the ex- that's, that's what you're thinking here. It's kind of similar to the movie, What About Bob? Am I allowed to use 90, 1990s movies? I'm gonna. So imbecile and needy Bill Murray, who's Bob, follows his shrink Richard Dreyfus, who is Dr. Leo Marvin, on vacation, and it drives the doctor to insanity. At the end, he's actually the one that needs a shrink. He didn't like Bob, didn't want Bob intruding, was trying to escape the work that Bob represented. And that's what I would expect to see from Jesus. That's what you would see from me. That's what I expect to see from Jesus. The, the difference here is Jesus likes and loves the needy people following him. And so the text says that he welcomed them. And he starts addressing their needs. Now that's from Jesus' perspective. But from the crowd's perspective, they just really want to be where Jesus is. Right? So I don't know if being a groupie is a thing anymore. I don't think that's a bad term. It's when people follow a band around on tour. I wouldn't do it, but people have done it, do it. Why are they doing that? Because their highest joy is that moment of rapture when the band hits that tune or they play that special part of the song or they get to meet that person in the band that they're obsessing about. This is what it's like for these people chasing Jesus and for good reason, right? Jesus is walking around in places where people have very little to nothing at all And he's healing them, he's meeting their needs, he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. And it comes with power and life change. Right, so this is where terms like Jesus is a rock star comes from. Crowds are flocking wherever he is. Now the next part of the text gives us a little bit more about the crowd's desperation. It says, now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging to get provisions, for we are here in a, in a desolate place. The crowds are so desperate to be around Jesus that they gave no thought to food and lodging. Are you aware that on Black Friday every year, like the night before Thanksgiving, people camp outside places like Walmart and Best Buy, to get the hottest item that's out that year or that Christmas toy that's just about to run out. 
those people are crazy. If you've done that, you're crazy. These people, to me, seem crazy, but they're not. What they're doing is what anybody would actually do if they knew who Jesus was, if they could see who Jesus really is. So here is a point of conviction for all of us. Does your life reflect a life that is desperate to be around Jesus like this, to the point where Jesus is more important than food and sleep? I'm speaking very much as a person who loves my own comfort, comforts. My couch, Netflix, reading Lord of the Rings are very strong attractions. So these are hard things for us to deal with in our soul. If Jesus was living in our day, would we be the ones in the crowd following Jesus, or would we be among those who don't know what to make of Jesus and just continue on in our daily life and our daily comforts? So if I was being moralistic, moralistic, I would say something like, get up off your couch and you pray harder. So we definitely want to be the people in the crowd, uh, not the people who prefer their own comforts over Christ. But the reality is that outside of the grace of God, we wouldn't be the people in the crowd. Right? Every one of us, if left to our own desires, would choose our own comforts over following Christ. So it's good to read a text like this if it drives you to God in a way of prayer that's, you know, God, make me more like the person in the crowd. But not to read a text of scripture like this and just beat yourself up over all the ways in which you're not living up to the Christian standards and following Christ. We can get the heart hunger only if it comes from faith and repentance and chasing after God, and that's a miracle on us. But he said to them, this is the next verse, But he said to them, you give them something to eat. So real quick, this is typical, hot take, didn't see it coming, drop the mic Jesus, telling them to do something. Jesus likes to do this in order to probably challenge our faith or challenge the faith or highlight the uniqueness of who he is and what he's about to do. Right, like if I walked outside this building and I grabbed one of you and I was like, grab that car and lift it up with one arm and bench press it over your head, you'd be like, uh, no, when are you normal people, not Luke? You'd be like, no, I, I can't do that. And I was like, watch this, boom, and I did that. You'd be like, uh, what just happened? So I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He just, it's better when he makes you think about how impossible the thing that's about to happen is, and then he does it. At least that's how I understand the silly command from Christ here. Next verse. They said, we have no more than five loaves can't say that word, loaves, right? Yeah, loaves and two fish. Unless we are go to buy food for all these people, for we are about 5,000 men. So now we know that there's only enough food to feed five people, and there's at least 5,000 or more people in the crowd. The kind of money that would be required to feed these people, the disciples don't have, and most likely if you combine their money with all the people's money, there isn't enough money to get there. And then you're asking, well, where would they, they're in a desolate place. Where would they even get all this food to feed 5,000 people? So the disciples think about it. They explain what's going, going on. They say, nice idea, Jesus, but that's dumb. Sorry. Next slide. Next verse. He said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish... He looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. I'm sorry, I lost my place. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. 
And they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. So this is the end of our story. Here is the miracle. Five loaves, two fish, become 5,000 loaves, 2,000 fish. I'm assuming they were big fish like carp, not small fish like mackerel. There's an interesting conversation that Peter has with Jesus right after this event. And Jesus asked Peter, who do the crowds say that I am? And Peter says, well, some say that you're the prophet Elijah, or some say that um, one of the prophets of old has arisen. So if you're one of those people that likes to see the Old Testament and the New Testament come full circle, you're really going to love this part. So Peter says that they say you're Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet who left his anointing. God anointed the next prophet in line. His name was Elisha. So it gets confusing, but Elijah came first, then came Elisha. They were both heavy hitters during the times of um, the kings after David and Solomon. Read this text in 2 Kings chapter 42. It says, A man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give them to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? A thousand years later, Jesus shows up and he does this exact same miracle. Even the wording is similar. He just does it on a 50 scale. So why did Jesus do this same miracle? Well, first of all, God is, always seeming, God is seemingly always doing more than one thing, right? He plans, he executes, and he's usually pulling off more than one thing. But the first thing that's clear is Jesus cares for and feeds hungry people. But the second point, which is, I would say, more important and, and the point that we're supposed to grab is that Jesus is the capital P prophet. Jesus is actually the prophet that was to come. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus is actually the prophet that we were supposed to be looking towards. It's Jesus is how we understand a text of scripture like this in 2 Kings. Now, to start to bring things to a close, I want to draw out a few things from this text. Okay, the first is this. Jesus is the God of nature. Jesus is the God of nature. Not long ago, a few Sundays ago, Tim preached through the text where Christ tells the storm to shut up. That's the literal interpretation from the Greek. From the Greek. And he did. Right? Tim brought out this exact same point. This bread text and the text where Jesus calms the storm are similar in that they demonstrate that the stuff we deal with in our natural environment, items like weather and food, it's all Jesus' stuff. He controls it. So to, to prep for this morning, I read a book by C.S. Lewis called Miracles. And it's, it's an excellent book for how a thinking and rational person can come to the Bible and understand claims of miracles. Some parts of it are hard, but most of it is accessible. Now, what he would say, what he did say in that book about something like this, 
about Jesus multiplying the food unnaturally, he would say that it's not magic, or at least it's not the kind of magic that we would think of. It's not like, this is for Ezra, but it's not like Harry Potter where Jesus had the elder wand and he just waved it and he made, he made stuff pop into existence. C.S. Lewis would say that this is the nature God, or rather the God of nature, introducing into nature a new temporary pattern. So Jesus, the God of nature, who made the laws of if A, then B, basically if a male fish swims over a female fish and does his thing, multiply the fish. What he's doing is he's saying if A2, then B2. If my hands break the bread, multiply the bread. After that, the bread still follows the normal pattern, feeds people, and then you know what happens after that. So it wasn't a magic trick. It wasn't a sleight of hand. It wasn't silly ancients who believed that this kind of stuff happened all the time, and so they wrote a story about how magic happened and bread got multiplied, and then for thousands of years, we've all believed this. No. The God of nature simply multiplied the bread with his hands because it is, in, it is his nature. He made all nature. He multiplies bread every day in a million fields. In this instance, he just did it a different way. So you know how in your house, you're really comfortable? You know where the silverware drawer is, right? You know where your sweatpants are. You, your side of the bed has a special dent in it that's just perfect for your body, right? And then you know what happens when someone takes something that you've kept in a drawer because it's yours and you know where it goes and then they take it and then you need it? It's maddening, right? Why? It's yours. It belongs where it belongs. You're the one who put it there. You have dominion in your house. You decide where things go. You are the master of your domain. When God incarnate in Jesus is operating inside of nature and over nature, he does so with the finesse and accuracy, and knowledge of someone who is operating in their own house. God made nature. God controls nature. God is not stumped by what's happening to us in our immediate surroundings. God is in control. So the point is to help us breathe. If you're dealing with something outside of you that is making you uncomfortable, that is making you fearful, you can trust in God who is in control. The next point I want to make, or that the text gives us, is this. Jesus is bread. So it's not just that Jesus would be really good use as a baker, although he obviously would have been. He would have been, he was wonderful use at a wedding. He made vintage Bordeaux, BC 500 Cabernet. But the bigger point is that he is bread, right? Jesus is is like the bread that multiplied. Jesus feeding 5,000 people is actually accounted in all four Gospels. And in the Gospel of John, right after he performs this miracle, the crowds catch up with him, and what he says is, I tell you that you're not looking for me because you saw the miraculous. You're looking for me because you ate your fill of bread, which was condemning. And then he later said, I am the bread of life. So it's true that Jesus met the natural need of the hungry crowd. 
they were hungry. If he didn't feed them, they would have had to leave. They would have been, they would have been leaving hungry and it would have been uncomfortable. So Jesus does know what our basic needs are and he meets them, things like food and clothing. But if all we ever do is look to Jesus as the bread God and we pray to the bread God that he would fill our, bar- our barns with lots of bread, we're missing the point. We are mistaking our temporary needs for food and clothing, things that God knows that we need, and we're giving them a higher place in our life than they actually deserve. Right? When Jesus gives us natural bread, food, we should be reminded that the real food that satisfies our hunger is God, God revealed in Christ. Our eternal sustenance is God. So Jesus is actually the point of the bread miracle, not the miracle. And lastly, the last point of the text, what we get in the last verse is satisfied with leftovers. It's silly to think about, but imagine if this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was that Jesus only fed 2,500 people out of 5,000. You'd be like, wow, that was an incredible miracle. He fed 2,500 people, but he kind of ran out of gas at the end and he just wasn't able to do it. That kind of thing never happens with Jesus. Because Jesus has the gas to satisfy everyone. But at the end of the story, it's not only that he fed everyone and everyone was satisfied, which is amazing, but he overdid it. At the end, each disciple picks up baskets of leftovers. Sometimes I hear people worrying about, oh, heaven, I'm going to live forever. That sounds boring. I'm worried that the satisfaction will run out. They need to read this text. The satisfaction doesn't run out. Even I get worried that my provisions that I have on a daily basis will run out. I'm afraid that when I go to work, the work's going to dry up. They're not going to need me. They're going to let me go. I'm not going to have enough money. I'm not going to have enough food. On and on it goes. Maybe that happens. But that doesn't actually ultimately matter. The ability of Jesus to provide for and sustain his people both naturally and spiritually, is there. He always meets the need. He always satisfies, with, satisfies the need. And there's always more left over in the end. You cannot exhaust God. He is inexhaustible. So would you believe that today and go with me in prayer?